Hey, got another podcast. You ready to hear it? Well, you will in a moment after we get through some news bites. First, we're going to start off with Crowdfunding Chronicles, uh, My Only Sunshine, which Tina Ola covered. It uh, already has finished its funding process as of this recording, and it looks really neat. It's a dating sim, but everything is um, or like a visual novel kind of dating thing, but everything's the galaxy. You know, you're the sun, and you get to romance you know, male form versions of each of the planets and celestial bodies. So there you go. You can uh, check that out, see how the progress of that game is going, and if they reach some more of their stretch goals and everything through uh, her article. And there's, of course, a few other features to look at. The first one comes from Atlanta Heggs. She did up more than just a flower girl, a personal thank you to Aerith Gainsborough. Uh, this does have some spoilers from the original Final Fantasy VII in it, just so you're aware, which also could spoil the remake for you, so tread with caution if you haven't gotten through either game. Either way, this article is beautifully written and explores Alana's relationship with Aerith as a character and how that viewpoint changed and she discovered the strength, so give it a read, it's fantastic. Our next feature is a series of questions from Patrick Gann about Romancing Sega Reuniverse, a nice interview with Sega series producer Masanori Shikawa. If you want to go check out uh, how in-depth the series has gotten from the producer's point of view, then go read this interview. Peter Triesenberg has taken a very uh, roundabout way of looking deep into the Final Fantasy VII Remake's ending through You Cannot Redo, examining the ending of the Final Fantasy VII Remake. It uh, is an interesting cross-reference of how the story has been laid out and compares it to Neon Genesis Evangelion and many of the fan theories involved. So there's a lot of spoilers within this article, so be aware of that. Otherwise, if you want to take a deep dive into some uh, meandering thoughts on how the storytelling works out in Final Fantasy VII Remake, this feature's here for you. Now over to our reviews. We've got a few of those to cover, some of which uh, I was remiss and overlooked on the last episode just because we've got a new way of titling things and I overlooked it and I'm silly. Anyways, covering those now, Planet Stronghold 2 came out a while ago and Andre Bolding gave it a pretty solid overall review. And uh, if you want yourself a nice traditional RPG slash visual novel to kind of dive into, it seems to be a good marriage of both and has a nice little sci-fi twist to it all, so go check that out. Next up is a really, really interesting kind of art piece graphic adventure called The Procession of Cavalry that Bob Richardson dove into that borrows a lot of very classic art in its art design. And it's, it's just a really strange, interesting looking game from Joe Richardson that was uh, developed by him and uh, Super Hot Presents. So if you want a very, uh, very different and I guess very Western uh, graphic adventure, go check this one out. Uh, it's no shock that Audra Bowling Game RPG Fan Editor's Choice to Dragon Quest XI-S Echoes of an Elusive Age Definitive Edition. We chatted a bit about it uh, one of the past episodes, I think three episodes ago as of this recording? I can't remember. Either way, this holds up as being the definitive edition of this uh, game. So if you have been holding out on Dragon Quest XI, now is the time to grab XI-S, and you're going to get the uh, best version of it there. The Pale City. Uh, this is one of those ones that Neil Chandran uh, braved for us, and, you know, it's a game. Um, you could maybe play it if you really, really, really wanted to. Uh, I would maybe recommend not, but who knows, maybe you'll find something you like in it. Anyways, moving on. Final Fantasy XIV Stormblood. Remember that expansion? Yeah, it came out a while ago. We're a little behind on reviewing it, but uh, Kaylin got her thoughts out on that expansion for us, so that way we had a definitive review 
on that entire entry in the Final Fantasy XIV saga, so go check out her thoughts if uh, for some reason you've been on the fence about this amazing MMO that we always have good things to say about. Otherwise, on to the next review. Celestian Tales Realms Beyond has, again, another game with a beautiful looking art direction, really different style to its portrayal. Otherwise, the game is a really neat traditional RPG that kind of falls just above average according to our reviewer, Audra Bowling, who is a very busy bee somehow. Uh, she's, uh, yeah, uh, it's not without its flaws, but overall this seems to be a neat game, and at the very least you ought to enjoy its visual presentation. Now we go over to the music reviews, which again, I missed one because I'm a silly boy. So the first one that I missed was uh, the Keyblade War. So if you were craving some really rad Kingdom Hearts music, the Keyblade War comes from Materia Collective, so you know it's going to be a solid album. It was reviewed by, you guessed it, Patrick Gann, and yeah, it's just, the music from this is pretty glorious, so go check that out. And we have another solid review from Patrick Gann. This is from East 8 Super Ultimate. Uh, this is just a, another approach to the East 8 OST. And it's, yeah, it's the arrangements that you could have always wanted from it. Uh, as Pat directly references in his uh, review that he wanted these rearrangements, and now he's got them. So if you want to check out another take on East 8's music, here is the album for you. Bing, bam, boom. That's it. We can move on to the episode. Thanks so much for listening to these. And you know what? Before I move on, I'm going to say a big special thanks to uh, people behind the scenes, Micah and Brian. These are some of our editors who do a lot of the podcasts, both on Retro and on Random. They do the editing for us when uh, they have the time. Sometimes it's me, but mostly it's been them lately, and I appreciate you both so much. So keep doing what you do. Keep making these things sound great, and we'll just keep talking for you. So uh, with that being said... On to episode 189, A Random Encounter. Listeners, we're still here. Hopefully, you're still here. This is Random Encounter, RPG fans, uh, random podcast, really, for lack of a better description. I am Greg Dalmage here on episode 189 with some uh, fun folks. We have John Logan, as always, my handsome co-host. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure having you. Uh, and Jono is the first person on Random Encounter to be brave enough to also come on with Pete Leavitt, our other guest. Making history. Right? It's uh, no one else has wanted to talk to Pete but me. Probably because we get so off topic about stuff. Oh my gosh, Greg, have you played Mech Warrior 5 yet? It's so fun. I just started it. Have you uh, seen the way I've done my floors in my house? I just polished them, they look really good. Hopefully, Jono can keep us on track. Really, that's what this is all about. (laughs) Have you guys seen the new Star Trek trailer? We're doomed. We're doomed, everybody. Now you're just I'm fighting. just kidding. I'm sorry. Star Trek is wonderful. No, but I haven't seen the trailer. I will though. It's not a trailer really. It's just it's the it's the stars of the of uh the new show that just got announced. Just saying, "Hey, we got a new show. Cool." Yeah. It's it's more Anson Mount and I'm down for Anson Mount. So, yay. I think everyone's down for Anson Mount. 
right? Like he's, ugh, Helen Wheels is so good. He does a great pike. He's just ugh, so good. But anyways, RPGs, that's what we are actually here for. Um, although I guess the first stuff we're going to get into is more news and not all of it has to relate to RPGs, but it's going to be pretty important moving into the future because, oh my gosh, we have all seen that Unreal 5 tech demo. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, like we all remember being a kid in like 95 or whatever when, uh, the PlayStation came out and the Nintendo 64 and all that stuff. And you're just like, oh my gosh. You're like that kid from the Zelda commercial. Look at those graphics. And you you think, you see those FMVs, and you're just like, it's never going to get better than this. And then PS2 comes out. It's never going to get better than that. And then they keep pushing the envelope. And really, like I felt we reached a pretty solid plateau over these past few years. Like It's it's pretty hard to make better iterations. Like It's been a good time to buy in as a PC gamer because of that kind of plateau. Like You can tweak and boost here and there but really you can get by now for a lot longer than you could during the like that tech race right yeah absolutely you can down you you can download a game that's like five or six years old and it will still look real good and exactly right it's it's hard to imagine it getting too much better i mean film and cinema has definitely been pushing those limits and they have to because they are trying to crawl out of the uncanny valley and like you know i i won't lie there was a good uh portion of rogue one star wars rogue one where i forgot that um i can't remember his name the actor who played grand marv talker and i forgot that he was dead because of how good he looked on screen <laughs> and uh, yeah but then uh then princess leia shows up at the end and you're like oh yeah oh yeah and like they cheated it great moment well enough Give it his view. Yeah, exactly. Like, they cheated it well enough. They got through quick enough that if you didn't linger on it too much, but if you sit there staring at it long enough, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no. But at any rate, now we're actually finding, like, in this Unreal 5 tech demo, it's like now you're playing basically almost at a cinematic level. And it's insane because, like, I've been going through Horizon Zero Dawn recently, and, like, I find that game pushes graphical envelopes so hard, and it's now a three-year-old game. And even like the original Tomb Raider of like the reboot of the series and to uh, shadow of the Tomb Raider, like all those games look fantastic as well. And now you're seeing this and I'm just like, oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. Like we're just going to start just playing Pixar movies. It's insane. Yeah. I think one of the coolest things when I was watching some, uh, some commentary about it, uh, how this could completely revolutionize the way that uh, people make tie-in games. For example, uh, the Mandalorian, Disney could just import like the already existing assets straight into the Unreal uh, 5 engine. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And just use them and they will be screen accurate. That's a really interesting point. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but that's exactly it. Like, yeah, they could just the amount of Marvel stuff they could just rip out of the Marvel Universe and just throw right onto the console for you. That'd be bananas. Like you. Uh, yeah, you could just play it as is and it's going to be a lot less of that. uh I guess, I mean, I don't know. At that point, though, does it take away from the artistry of the game studios themselves who get to add their own stylistic twist to it? Would you rather the cohesive environment between the two, the cohesive art style between the two? It depends. I mean, if you were to... Let, let's. I, this is another thing I saw online. It's not my idea. I, can't, I don't remember where I saw it, though, but someone suggested that for uh, open-world games that take place in real cities like New York or uh, 
Chicago, they could technically just import a high, highly detailed uh, map of those cities straight into the game engine and then refine right. them from there. And which we're going to see, yeah. I think it could be a massive time save, but I don't imagine that they would not put their own stamp on the assets. This is, a, this is a question that's been asked a lot as, as game development tools have become cheaper and easier to access. There is some contingent of people out there who were like, is this take away from how special games development is? And I would just stick to the old adage um, said that I, or that I've heard by who I find uh, have some amount of wisdom on the matter that anything to make creation easier should be celebrated and good. So it, maybe you don't spend all that time making all those assets because they're already created by the art team at Disney or at LucasArts, but you can spend more time on whatever systems or whatever else that you might uh, want to devote your resources to. Then that's a fair point because, yeah, they're not tied up so much in uh, in the creation period. If a lot of that's there, then they can just focus on refining that story and the mechanics. It's a fair point. It's also just funny hearing the meme like, look at all the triangles, the billions of billions of triangles. And it's, I mean. It's like uh, we're back in 2002. Yeah, exactly. But it's true. Like, yeah, it's just, it's so, all these little tiny things when they did that, um, the the takeaway of like the, all the textures and just showed you what's there and it just kind of looks like noise. And it's like, I assure you it's not. These are all just tiny little triangles that everything is textured onto. And yeah. All the nanites, right? Yes. Like, Micro triangles or whatever they call them nanites, which is funny. Yeah, the the name of the tech demo was uh, Lumen in the Land of Nanites. Yeah, because it's a That's couple adorable. different engines working together. Because yeah, it's the nanites that build up like the textures and the world and the, the basically everything that's well, the rendered. Yeah, yeah, the geometry, and then Lumen is the very smart lighting engine, and then uh, ah, what was the new AI engine? Uh, where everything reacts with its environment a lot more realistically. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it. But yeah, they've also been working on how I think it was called In interacts. the Land of, right? No? Oh, okay. Mm, Is it in no. that? Lumen in, land, Lumen in the Land of Nanite. Right, so In the Land of has to be the AI engine is what I'm saying. Bad joke, <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> oh, now I get it. Now it's funny. I get you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes, it's sure funny. Uh -huh. It had a better... <laughs> Uh, so don't worry, folks. Pete will never be on another episode. No, I can't. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but it's it's cool. Yeah, that, that, obviously that's going to get smarter too with more processing power. Like that's really what I saw. Uh, was oh, sorry. That's really what I was going to thinking was all we could really improve on move forward moving forward with better processing power into our consoles and into our PC parts is just that we could make the world smarter, can make AI smarter and the mechanics a lot more intricate. But it, yeah, watching them push the boundaries of the graphical stuff too. Like, I am super excited. I was watching the video and very excited for the fact that are we finally going to reach an age where people's weapons and clothes and hair don't clip through each other? That we don't have to Ooh. suspend our disbelief and just let be okay with that happening? Like, now actually things will, will flow over each other as they naturally should. Hmm. Like, I don't know if they're going to be powerful enough to... Um, animate each individual hair with real physics? I'm not sure. We shall see. Uh, but that would be probably that 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 would be the big thing that I think will really set the next generation graphically apart. If everything interacts with real physics, it's that would be nuts. Like as it was, like watching the character interact with the world around it was a lot more seamless. 
it was less of a you couldn't really see like the layer so to speak that like the hand was touching like it looked like it was actually like interacting with the actual crevices and the surfaces of things it was very cool i'll tell you one thing that was exciting for me is the way that they're doing ray ray tracing now they're um having some kind of what i saw was there was some kind of distinction between large medium large or distant medium and small objects and um like large objects the light map is being or i don't know if light map is the correct term but the the built up surf the built up surface that the light is supposed to bounce off of to create a ray tracing effect is you is built using voxels versus triangles which is what real time ray tracing uses you know as we see it in like the rtx cards and stuff um and I don't have an RTX video card. I have a video card I'm very happy with on my computer, but it would be cool if, because the whole point of this is that you can do real-time ray tracing with far lower overhead. How much lower overhead, I guess, remains to be seen, but potentially it would be neat for me to turn on ray tracing on the games on my computer, even though I don't have an RTX card, and see how well that works, you know? And so in a way, we're talking about how hardware and graphics have plateaued a little bit. In a way, this is kind of like bringing up previous generations of hardware uh potentially you know and that's cool yeah. anything that makes stuff more accessible and less ex- exclusive is is good i agree uh who would have guessed that voxels would make a uh would make a strong comeback this late in the game over polygons let me tell you something just three days ago i was playing terra nova strike force centauri which has landscapes rendered all in voxels. And that game is stunning to look at for a 1996 video game that was mostly developed in 1994. Telling you. Hey, I'm not going to deny Blade Runner is an amazing looking game. (laughs) That's fair. Well, you two, yeah, I mean, you both seem to know the ins and outs of the hardware and the technology itself better than me. So for a layman like myself, let's say, because I know I've read it at some point, I don't remember it anymore. What is the difference between polygons and voxels? Uh, okay, well, this is going to be tremendously uh, simplified. My knowledge is not tremendous because I'm not a, uh, I am not, this isn't my field, but uh, polygons are, you know, triangles. They, you know, you put them together and you can build a, uh, you can build a 3D object or person or, or setting using, uh, using triangles. But with voxels, they are essentially 3D pixels in space. And when you put enough of them together, you can essentially build a 3D object. Voxel stands for volumetric pixel, I think. Yeah, so they're essentially a, a bunch of little with, cubes, with the, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. pixel with a y-axis. So yeah, the little cubes or if a z-axis rather. Yeah, if you're wondering what it looks like, uh, what was the what was it was the Zelda it was the Zelda ripoff on PlayStation Three, uh, 3D Dot Game Heroes. Yeah, that those are voxels. It's just really funny because the the voxels polygon debate was very much like the VHS beta debate, and uh, beta didn't come back. But voxels are making a strong. I guess I guess at this stage of the game, you use whatever works, and old technology or old ideas have come to the fore now. The technology has reached the point where they can be useful. So confirmed here, PS Five will use HD DVDs. Well, <laughs> well, back 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 in the day, voxels were used to actually render the. Uh, render usually the set like the setting the landscape the world and it was since it was almost the same cost as a pixel rather than like a set of triangles you could build huge worlds so some famous examples are like uh delta force the first person tactical shooter 
that came out in the 90s or um, Comanche, which was a helicopter simulator developed by um, the same people who did Terra Nova, Strike Force Centauri. And so in, you know, at, at 320 by 200 resolution, um, the, you had these in, incredible expansive landscapes with such a long draw distance. You could see forever out there. And th- there was all kinds of cool effects they could do at very low cost. Like in Terra Nova Strike Force Centauri, there's bodies of water that reflect the skyboxes and it, and for a game that, that was developed so long ago it looks really good and um it just but now the textures at that point i guess the, the the voxels well it was yeah you you would color it in almost like you would like a software rendered uh yeah. bitmap on a on a polygon it was it was just all the all the voxels were colored and that would give you the texture effect but the context that we're talking about now is that the actual surface that the light is bouncing off of to create a ray tracing effect is built using voxels versus a triangle modeled. Uh, if you think of it as like, like layers in Photoshop, you have the layer that you see, right. which is like the mountain, right? Because we're talking about big objects in the context of the, of the Unreal 5 engine. So you have the mountain that you see, but in a layer that you cannot see, which is a layer that the light, the game engine inter- interacts with, those are voxels. So you can't see the voxels, Unlike in the old games, where or like Minecraft, where every, the world is built and rendered using voxels, the voxels are only there to provide a path or a surface off of which the light bounces to create the ray tracing effect, to create the lighting effects that they're looking for. And so it's good because it's so much cheaper overhead-wise versus creating another 3D model that you wouldn't even see, but is just there to be a surface for the light to bounce off of. Right. That makes sense. And that's not to say that... Uh that uh, triangles are not making a strong showing with this engine when they were Definitely. talking about they were t- yeah when they were talking about like when they when she walks into the cave and there's all of the statues and they're like there are i can't even remember how much 50, 16 like, billion i want to say yeah like billion and i'm like 460 wow. billion there was i remember billions i remember when mario was like seven <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask uh what do you think um the importance of this engine could be potentially for RPGs or if it's just prettier RPGs. Back, like, is it a callback back in the days when like the RPGs were the prettiest games ever that, that were made or is it just graphical you think, or you think there's some other benefit? I think that, uh, and again, I, I haven't dug really deeply into the technical details, but as I understand it, it probably will make open world games cheaper and easier to make. Um, and that could certainly play a big role when it comes to RPGs. Yeah, good we point. We could see them from more studios, for example. And and it's also possible it's going to make much more dynamic open worlds for us to play in. More people are going to play around with night and day effects, especially if it's so much easier to play with the lighting. You'll be, you know, torch effects, all that sort of stuff, how the player interacts with the environment. Uh, I don't know what it's going to mean for... Uh, like I mean, as in this tech demo specifically, you know, you see the world crumbling around the the player character, and it's like, you know, can she go back and revisit that? Is it all crumbled? Then does it all is it all changing real time? Like, how does that affect things as well? Right? We've seen them playing with it more and more, but as you said, if the assets are easier to build, if it's cheaper over all to build, and they can start perfecting those mechanics, then yeah, we could see more dynamic gameplay mechanics in these more dynamic worlds moving forward. If it's more time can be spent on that. Yeah, it's like you said, it's it's the way that her hands are going to be interacting with environments and working into crevices. And like when she touches the door, it's not going to just look like a puppet is holding a prop. 
Um, I think that as the technology continues to advance in terms of the environment, in terms of uh, characters' interaction with the environment, our eyes are going to stop picking up on the little immersion-breaking things because there's not going to be immersion-breaking things. Like, it really will be... It's going to get so seamless. Yeah, it really will be a time where, like, I don't know, let's take Yakuza, for example. Kiryu's going to kick someone in the face, and it's not he's not going to, like, clip through the wall. That face is going to deform in real time. Those are some physics teeth coming out of that guy's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, well... Well, yeah, will the will the PC itself interact with the environment that much better? I mean, we've already seen some games playing with that where the player character has its own awareness bubble where it won't just like blindly walk into things. You know, you'll see them shifting to move around people and stuff like that, which is impressive and awesome. And so, yeah, will that be the thing where, you know, will Kiryu gauge his reaction like there's a wall within reach there that I'm going to hit if I do this attack? So I won't it, like they'll they won't be able to allow you to do that attack knowing that the physics will crash, so to speak. Yeah, or the, or wonder. it'll just intelligently just change the move, so it will do something yeah. that, yeah, you're it's right. It's going to be possibly, yeah, more dynamic gameplay. We're also going to see, I mean, we've already, I, we likely have already been seeing that, but I feel like it oscillates between developers and capabilities and such, where you see a character reach down and grab an item, and the item becomes a part of them, in so much as the model itself is changed to, oh, now it's the model of, so-and-so holding an axe now it's the model of so-and-so holding a sword which is obviously much more obvious back in the day where you would kind of see that it's almost like the old uh, film swapping technique where like they had to pause put the thing in their hand through magic and then resume filming and you could see that just that little shift where like the actor moved that little bit of jank Mm -hmm. Um, and that's been getting more and more seamless of course but yeah it could be like you can interact and touch everything seamlessly and it's just as easy as you picking it up right and what is that going to bring for even vr technology you get that much more involved i think that with uh one of the things one of the things that video games and and movies television cartoons pretty much and plays theater uh, all have in common is the necessity of suspension of disbelief there needs to be you need to walk into the room and when you you're doing something or watching something or playing something you need to automatically be able to accept that oh and that guy's face goes through that wall it's just because, you know, it's it's a problem with the game yeah. engine, the physics aren't there. You accept the given circumstances. Yeah, you accept the given circumstances. And I honestly think that there's still a slight mental cost to that. And I feel like the that suspension of disbelief is going to continuously get shorter, smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, I don't think it's ever going to quite reach reality. No. But it's going to get so close that I think that we're going to stop noticing at all. I just had a thought thrill me to the bone. So you know how uh, everyone nowadays talks about how bad PlayStation graphics are? And of course they're wrong. The PlayStation looks great. It has a look. And I personally quite like the way the PlayStation looks a lot of the time. Are you talking about PS4 specifically? I'm talking about PlayStation 1, my friend. Oh, okay. But you know how recently there's been some people going back to like, let me make a game that looks like the PlayStation 1. You guys have noticed that kind of phenomenon, right? Yeah. Uh, Anodyne 2, I think, did that? Yes, precisely. Yeah, it's the idea that the previous generation of indie games using pixel graphics were because those people grew up on the SNES yes. and, and Genesis, and now that the next generation has grown up with PSX graphics, that's what they're nostalgic right. for. So are we going to see, like, 
indie developers making games specifically with like really nice 3D models and good lighting, like circa 2018 or whatever. But like maybe they'll clip through objects or whatever, and that's like their way to make a point or whatever. That honestly, it sounds it might sound like I'm being facetious, but it honestly excites me. Like, what kind of messages or what kind of artistic point could you make by making a game where there's purposeful jank put in there? Yeah. I mean, given what you were just saying, though, about exploiting the jank and stuff, it now makes me think of that uh, the game in the Genesis comics zone where everything was all in like comic book and kind of breaking the comic book up, so to speak. It's like, are we going to get someone who like basically the character's superpower is to use game breaking 3D uh, jank, (laughs) like clipping through walls and cheating their way through stuff in order to get through the game and solve puzzles? I think a video game parallel might actually for this, uh, the idea of like a like a mass effect from today and using some of the some of the issues that were uh, in the PlayStation 1 era would be uh, Axiom Verge how Axiom Verge plays with uh pixels and errors and it looks Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it looks yes. a lot like an it looks like a brilliant 8-bit game that's but and it, because of that it actually uses those the the corrupted graphics and things like that as a gameplay element. Yeah, to progress, you have to, like, do speedrunning techniques or whatever at certain points to, like, oh, break through cool. the environment or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that would be kind of cool for the same thing as a commentary of where video games have been. At any rate, uh, other stuff we did want to talk about uh, kind of does harken back to some of those olden days we were just uh, going on about. Back on the Nintendo 64, there was a um, little-known title you may have heard of called Ogre Battle 64, Person of Lordly Caliber. We got it here in North America in October of 20, 2000, but it was released in Japan in 1999 in July. And I played, personally, uh, Ogre Battle March of the Black Queen first and just fell in love with that whole world, that gameplay style. And when my friend rented Ogre Battle 64 and we got more of the same and just with a cool 3D engine, again, that whole thing of like, oh, it'll never get better than this. This is so cool. But that game didn't, it floundered because of its style because it, it has such like a serious tone dealing with the politics and the strategy of the gameplay, the seriousness of it all. But then it looks very cartoony and childy and kind of clay figurey kind of thing. And so as I understood, there was a bit of a marketing dissidence for how the public took it on and it didn't end up selling that well. And I actually also heard that in some cases it was just recalled outright, I thought. I'm not sure if that was just a, an urban legend at the time. Either way, my friend has a, his original copy from the 64 back in the day, and so he just had it, and we were still able to play it. And then I later got it on the Wii Virtual Console, and I still have my Wii just basically for that game. So uh, I haven't finished it myself, but I plan to. But Pete here has been working on uh, a feature surrounding Ogre Battle 64, and he and I have had some some fun talks and have been pushing Ogre Battle on um, Retro Encounter as well, just so we have an excuse to play it. Um, so yeah, how's... How's been revisiting Ogre Battle 64 been for you, uh, Pete? It's been so good. It's been so, so good. Uh, I think people need to realize how good this game actually is. Uh, the conversation surrounding it is so often, oh yeah, the N64 had no RPGs except Quest 64 and Ogre Battle 64, and then it's like full stop. But the reality is Ogre Battle 64 stands up to anything the PlayStation has. It's it's a great rpg it's got um it's it's story is remarkably uh restrained and respectful and uh unglamorous and um i think speaks a truth 
at least in a very simplified way about revolutionary politics. Uh, and the battle system is really, really great. Um, and the first one laid a, a real... good foundation for that too. With, Certainly did. With the politics and everything. Like I found it really spoke to the gray area of rebellion and that it isn't just so cut and dry and black and white as a lot of our stories can make that out to be. It's a topic that I have a lot of interest in, like uh, like revolutions and revolt theory and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of games that deal uh, with the topic. And I mentioned uh, in, my, in my piece that I'm doing um, that since the business of revolution is so complicated and so messy, video games often simply just are totally unequipped to intelligently deal with, or at least deal with the intricacies of the subject. Um, and it's often, you know, and I love a lot of these games too. I mean, uh, I love freedom fighters, a game that came out in the mid two thousands. That is like the Soviet union took over New York and you have to fight them off. Like it's a, that's a great game, but it's, it's just it, the, the story it's very comic booky. It's fun, but it's fluff, right? It's like, oh, hey, we're the people of New York. We're rising up against this invading force. Where, and, and then in, in the in the case of RPGs, you have like Bahamut Lagoon. You have Final Fantasy VI. You have a, a legacy of games that deal with like a rebellion rising up against an oppressive force. Uh, but it's often served as just a platform onto which the game can get to its more existential matters, uh, the more kind of supernatural. And that's all. That stuff's all cool too. Even though it's definitely a trope, uh, and we see it very often, it, that trope can be wielded very effectively, in my opinion. Um, but the problem is, the matters of the revolution utterly fall away when you're dealing with something that can totally obliterate the whole world. Um, but what I find in Ogre Battle '64 is a game that does acknowledge the existence of the supernatural, and it does have monsters and demons in the underworld, and they're trying to bring back the ogre battle and. Initially, it's used uh, in a way almost like unconventional weapons were used, maybe in like World War One or in various conflicts, right? Um, to blunt the momentum of the revolution. Uh, your character is a noble who w- who went to the military academy, graduated, and soon after joined, like turned coat and joined the revolution. He's a person of lordly caliber. <laughs> you know, and that's an interesting Gosh, subtitle title. because I think the game. <laughs> I think the game in, in so many is a good subtitle. I love it, but in so many interesting ways. The reason why I love it, I love it because it sounds good, but I also love it. I feel like I it sounds game, so localized. <laughs> <laughs> it does, but it works for me. And I think one of the reasons why is because the game goes, in my opinion, to some length to subvert the expectation of that subtitle. Uh, I think that you're supposed to think that Magnus, the main character, is the person of lordly caliber that should lead and. You know the reason why the kingdom is falling is because no person of lordly caliber is fit is is there to lead it. The people in leadership are not of lordly caliber. Spoilers but, for this twenty-year-old game, FYI. I mean, yeah, spoilers for the very beginning. <laughs> but the um, it's a game about class conflict. It's a game about the differences the difference between classes. It's a game about uh, lower and working class people rising up. Um, it, it's a game that takes place in a puppet state of the Holy Lotus empire. And it seems like Palatinus, the, the, the country that the game takes place in is totally inert, except that it's meant to mine resources for the Holy Lotus empire. And they're using 
either um, slave labor, just straight up slaves, and they actually enslave an ethnic group, which gets into some areas that's that are kind of interesting. But even that is navigated with some tact, especially for the time. And uh, people who are just underprivileged working class people that are being exploited. And it's, it's a game about their conflict very much, uh, you know, the, very much about the conflict between the ruling classes and the working classes and the lower classes. And it never stops being about that. Despite the fact that there are demons, there's an underworld, there's an existential element. It never stops being about class warfare. It never stops being about the conflict between the underprivileged versus the 1%. And that's just a remarkable amount of restraint on the storytelling, in my opinion, for a game of that vintage and a game in that tradition. Um, even like Fantasy Tactics, which has remarkable takes on politics and, and, and whatever, those matters disappear in the face of an existential supernatural element, right? So this game That's has right. that stuff in it, but it never stops being, it, it never abandons its thesis. And I find that that's very much worth celebrated, and I don't see it celebrated nearly enough. And I, I went into looking up, I mean, I, I'm familiar with various histories of various revolutions throughout time and, and in different nations. And it, revolution certainly is uh, a, a major engine with which history is written. And I'm not, I don't. Well, it's how things glorify, change, I'm, right? And I mean, there's times where even nowadays it feels like we're very close to that to get some big changes happening in our current set of governments. Yeah. And I, I'm very careful not to glorify it. I'm not interested in this topic because I think it would be cool to be in a revolution. Like I, I think that that's very irresponsible um, just to think that off the bat. Um, uh, but I, I have a genuine kind of reverence for the topic and it led me into some, uh, kind of historical parallels and contrasts that are fascinating uh the leader of the revolution you join is classic like soviet revolution intelligentsia he's enlightened he's educated but his own education and his privilege with which you know that comes along with that education there are moments where he falters there are moments where he uh is somewhat tone deaf and he means well but there are moments where where you know the the matters that the people care about don't seem to necessarily line up with his and there's conflict within the revolution the the game showcases fractures and factions within the revolution which is a real concern you know uniting a revolution is a very fraught endeavor and it's not like as intricate as history has shown us these things are but it points to that stuff and it, and you get the sense that they do the best they can and they approach it with real confidence and intelligence and um that led me to look at some some real world revolutions and i could not help but include some excerpts of the haitian revolution in my in my piece and this is not a game that attempts to tell the story of something like the haitian revolution which is a singular moment in history because revolutions have always been carried out by the elite or the privileged in some sense and in, in, in nearly every case, right, um, there are exceptions always, but the biggest exception and the most contrasting exception is what happened in Haiti in the early 1800s. And I'm going to read some things from here. From this, and, and Yeah, go for it. It, it shows, it shows uh, a major contrast, and I want to make it clear, like, I'm not Haitian. I don't have any connection to Haiti, and I want to do this with as much respect as possible. 
Um, and also you have to take into account that this is the only, it's considered the only successful slave revolution in human history or that we know of, like in modern history. Um, and, and so you have to take that into account as you listen to this. Um, and so, yeah, please don't take this as any declaration of mine, but it is fascinating to read. And as an, as a document, it should be read. It's very challenging. It's very, uh, it's very gripping. Um, but like it's, <laughs> it says, for example, quote, it is, it says citizens, it is not enough to have expelled the barbarians who have bloodied our land for two centuries. It's not enough to have restrained those ever evolving factions that one after another mocked the specter of liberty that France dangled before you. We must, with one last act of national authority, forever assure the empire of liberty in the century in, or in the country of our birth. We must take any hope of re-enslaving us away from the inhuman government that for so long kept us in the most humiliating torpor. In the end, we must live independent or die. It's polarizing. And like, where does that feed into, like, do you find there's parallels in some of the script work and such in uh, 64? Well, there is that message to the people. There is, there is a little touch, a little nod to, um, and and again, I want to be as respectful as possible, but there is a nod to um, slave liberation in this game. There's a moment where you, literally liberate a uh and, and it's unfortunate that they must be liberated right i want to make that clear narratively it's an unfortunate choice that you would have to liberate an ethnic group that's been put in slavery in this game where we have like historical evidences of slaves rising up or people who have been oppressed so heavily rising up and able to overthrow the power that oppresses them and to its credit the folks that do end up being liberated um they never commit to your revolution fully they say we believe in what you're doing and we will help you but we will not take orders and so that is a that is a yet another faction in this complicated multifactional revolution that's happening and the revolution led by frederick and 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 carried out by by you and by other people who are working with you in in the narrative of the game they're forced to just accept their autonomy and so even that there, there was a, there's maybe a missed opportunity there, but there's also an opportunity taken to have some kind of tact and intelligence on this subject. Um, where, yeah, and, like and again, again, this is not a story of something like the Haitian revolution. It's much more akin to the Soviet revolution because it's a working class uh, uprising led by an educated, uh, enlightened person or, or, and, and, and it even has some nods to something like the revolutions in the American continent, um, where it's actually the elite that are rising up to gain independence. But um, there is a little bit of element of that. And I provide the, the example of the Haitian revolution and their declaration of independence, which is just full of fire. And it sounds like a founding document written by um, people who have been so heavily harmed for so many years um, as a contrast and a point of comparison. It's, it's really great that you're taking like such um an in-depth view of it and just where the parallels between real life. And I like that. She, yeah. It's, it's good that they uh, elucidate how well handled or you can elucidate how well handled the subject matter is despite itself, despite it's, it's time. And it's, it's going to be a really cool read once you get through it all. Because yeah, this whole, the whole franchise of Ogre Battle has always dealt with uprising and rebellion and, and bringing power back to the people to fight, a greater empire 
Um, again, my most of my knowledge comes from March of the Black Queen on the Super Nintendo. I didn't ever play Tactics Ogre. I keep hoping that the PSP version will get ported to Steam or something at some point. Um, and I, I mean, you can see where Tactics Ogre influenced Final Fantasy Tactics, and it's a very different journey for Ramza, because like you said, Magnus um, can be very tone deaf, and Ramza definitely starts off the game being tone deaf, and then eventually just kind of you see him grow up through time jumps, whereas with Magnus, you kind of have to go through it all in real time, so to speak. So Magnus gets berated in a meeting with revolutionary leaders, like in in a rather humili- humiliating way. And for an RPG protagonist to go through that journey is pretty unusual and remarkable. Well, yeah, because it's it's always all these games are definitely made to to give us a hero fantasy, and the the clever writing that's done here by um, uh, was I think Tomokazu um, Mamota. Uh, it just yeah, it's very. Um, it definitely takes away some power from you. You're right. Like it's not something we usually see in a lot of a lot of games in general, where you're you're told to wake up. I mean, that's definitely something we find in a lot more indie games and such, where they are trying to call into question society. So it's nice that they were trying to make a point here. Um, Jono, uh, just quickly before we move away, is have you gotten into any of the Ogre Battle games? Uh, just for the one, just the first one for SNES. I actually haven't played Ogre Battle '64. Um. Frankly, I'm absolutely stunned at what sounds like the the nuanced localization that this game got in 2000 um, for a Nintendo system, especially uh, because I was I was just reading a little bit about it before we recorded, and uh, like this game has it, it kept the mature elements that were in the Japanese version, um, swearing and uh, and it wasn't it didn't blunt anything. It it told the story that they originally meant to tell, and to me that's kind of remarkable that that happened. Yeah. Atlas gave us the goods. Yeah, especially this late into the Nintendo 64's life cycle. Yeah, it's um, might be your uh, your next thing to play through after Bravely, I guess. It's uh, yeah, they they just the storytelling is really quite good, and definitely took a step up from what you got in the Super Nintendo because it's definitely very limited in that game. But even then, I was I've always been every time I get into March of the Black Queen, which I still have yet to beat, but it sucks me in for such. Uh, just for the depth of the gameplay and the storytelling, and everything, and just uh, I love it, and, and I want to. And don't forget the finish it. Yeah, and don't forget the vocal samples either. When you uh... liberation, yeah, yeah, liberation, woo, <laughs> liberation is my favorite though. Liberation. <sighs> At any rate, uh, I also know, unfortunately, uh, with this episode, we are quickly going to go from three to two because uh, Pete can only tolerate so much of us. Now, Pete does have to run off, so uh, the rest of the episode, you're stuck with just Jono and I. But Pete, thanks so much for, be- for being on today. Thank you guys so much, and I'm, I'm sorry to leave a little early, but I certainly appreciate being on, and uh, I, I love any chance I, I get to, to be on here and to, and to speak with you folks. So uh, with that, uh, we turn back over to uh, just Jono and I, and... Uh... We uh, we had some other stuff to talk about on the docket. Um, I personally haven't really been playing too much else aside from Animal Crossing New Horizons. Those who have uh, been in deeply into that game know that once you reach a certain point um, and KK Slider visits your island, then you get the ability to start, uh, I guess, terraforming your island, for lack of a better term. And I finally unlocked that myself, so I've been doing a little bit of that, and that's been a lot of time and money. 
and uh, playing the stock market with my turnips and stuff too. Raked in three million in bells this week, so I had a lot of money to throw at changing some stuff around and making my town beautiful for my my citizens. So when I was playing RPGs, it was pretty much just me revisiting Horizon Zero Dawn finally. Remember that old classic from February of 2017? Um, <laughs> it still it it's such a good game. My gosh, but it kicks the crap out of me. <laughs> I was trying to do some quest that it, it seemed like it was like a few levels below where I'm at. And I'm fighting a rock breaker, and I just hated it. <laughs> I, I abandoned the quest for now, and I want to go back later when I have a better sense of it. And part of it was me just re, still remembering how to, to play the game again and refining my combat skills. I know I took the difficulty down a bit for myself, because when I started this run-through, I was playing it on the hardest setting and just being like, get good, Greg. Uh, but when you're just getting one-shotted by everything, it really... It, was, it wasn't so much of a... It was too hard for me, so to speak, but because it was too hard and it was, like, you know, one mistake would set me back a bunch, I was like, I'm never going to get through this game in a timely fashion, and I'm just, I'm too old for this. I don't have time to put into replaying everything whenever I make some small mistake. So I know I dialed it down a bit so I could actually make some progress. But yeah, I've been progressing a bit more through the story after I moved aside from that and getting a sense of it. But uh, yeah, it's... This is one of the staples of the PS4 for good reason, and I can't wait to see more from this game because it's just, it's so good. And Ashley Birch, that's the name, right? I Yes, it is, because I screwed that up. I screwed that up on one of the first episodes I was on, I believe. Yeah, and she is just outstanding in this game. And it's actually only recently that um, one of our amazing uh, folks behind the scenes, uh, Mark has been on the episode, though, Mark Chan, uh, has been on the episode in the past, but he reminded me that this was from hey she's the the same person from hey ash what you playing that old youtube series and i didn't know that and then it blew my mind that this uh just young woman who just had started some silly youtube channel of her playing things and just being yelled at by i can't was her partner her brother i think, I think her dad on in some of the episodes too yeah just this their ridiculous fun little web series and it was it was super silly and funny and like now she's like one of the best performers out there for voice work and a big name in the community and she's just she's fantastic yeah she's tearing things up and yeah and her heart in this game is just wonderful the life that Aloy has has always been a standout there's a reason why she's such a polarizing character and hmm. yeah this game is just fantastic i don't know if you've dabbled in it yet but if you have access to it john will play it i know it's coming to pc soon that's where i'm waiting for it yeah i'm gonna which is I'm, great yeah it's been so long for most anyone without a ps4 <laughs> Yeah, well, I have a PS4, but I got it after the game was released, so I kind of just got, you know, didn't wasn't on my radar, um, except... Waylaid by new stuff. Waylaid by new stuff. Um, but it's been on my backlog for a while, and then I heard it was coming out for Windows, and I was like, okay, it can remain in the backlog a little while longer until it comes out for Windows. Yeah, so it, it looks like an amazing game. It looks like a game that's right up my alley. And what you were saying about the uh, difficulty and having to change the difficulty, I, I don't think that that is... The tone you were using was almost like shameful. Like, oh, I changed the difficulty. That's it's fair. I, I don't think I subscribe to the Stephen Meyerink way of playing uh, from the podcast, where he was just always hard all the time, and I was like, you know what? That's not a bad way to approach it because a lot of games you'll 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 get with the the learning curve. But yeah, I, I shouldn't shame myself. You're right. No, because there's a point where you know certain, like you said, life comes in, and right now all of us have an abundance of life on our plates, um, and the the curve of enjoyment to difficulty at some point starts to, you know, you, the harder something is, the less you're going to enjoy it. Um, 
especially for a game like this, which is, you know, open world action RPG. It's a little bit different when you're playing something like Celeste, which is like throw the controller at the screen hard. But it's <laughs> but like the second you die, you start again at the beginning of like a one screen thing. So it's you learn and you keep going and going and going and going and going. Yeah. And it's not like the horizon sets you back too far, but it still sets you back far enough that you're like, Ugh. yeah, you get set back to the point where you have to redo and get to the car- get to the uh, enemy that beat you again. And then theoretically, well, exactly. Get- and in between, you may have lost the random drops that might have been much better than the ones that get generated this time around. Um, you might have not like all the time I spent picking up herbs to prepare me for this. Now I have to go do all that again because I didn't save in between. Like, yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it, it's an interesting conversation, which I wouldn't mind having on the podcast another episode about um, where where game developers put the default difficulty level. Like, at what point is, obviously, they need to try to balance all the difficulty levels, but where is mm-hmm. the optimal balance? Is it hard? Is it is it regular? Is it just the default? Sometimes it's easy. Then there's games that, uh, that dynamically change the difficulty level depending on how you're doing it. Resident Evil 4 is famous for that. Oh, cool. I didn't actually know that it, it adjusted for you. Yeah, apparently if you, uh, you don't even notice it because it's done in the background. Whereas if you continuously, you know, die, uh, later in the game, you'll get a few less enemies and areas and things like that. It'll dynamically change the game to still provide you with a challenge, but not necessarily, uh, with a challenge that is so far above your play level that, uh, you can't beat it. Um, well, that's cool. Cause I always like that about something like, um, oh gosh, other zombie game uh it was a hit uh, multiplayer online you had to get to safe points in between there was a bunch of different like types of mobs of enemies and you would get swarmed by them was it left for dead left for dead thank goodness you got there yeah i loved that it did that that dynamic kind of shifting of the world if you were doing too good kind of thing uh yeah i mean i this is a game that i've been you know i'm looking forward to playing uh when it comes out on pc and i will you know obviously i'll be talking about it on the podcast um, yeah, exactly. And I'm maybe by then I've made further progress and or be progressing with you. This one also has what I love uh, as a story mode for uh, gameplay setting as well. So for someone like my wife who doesn't commit as hard to playing it for as long a period of time and like can fall off with the combat because a lot of it, the, the combat is very skill based. And if you get rusty at it, then you're not as good as you once were. Right. I mean, there's a reason why most of the best Fortnite players are like teenagers because they got time to play it. Mm. Um, whereas, yeah, with something like this with story mode, though, like everything's scaled to enjoy the story, which is what a lot of people might go to this game for because the story is beautiful. And that's why I keep pushing through it. Like I was so frustrated with a battle the other day and getting so angry about it, which for one is already a standout for something for my wife to notice because I don't get angry very often. And so she was noting my frustration. She's like, why do you even play this then? I'm like, because the story's really good <laughs> and I want to play it because it's a really good game. Um, not bringing up at that point how angry she got last time we played Civ Five, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to which she will just grin and pretend everything's fine. No, um, but yeah, like I heavily will be encouraging her to play this because she likes stuff like the new Tomb Raider series and um, Breath of the Wild, but you know the combat can get finicky for her. So if there's something like this that can make the combat a bit less of uh, a, a point of stress and fear for her and she can still just enjoy the story in the world then like that's the ideal thing for her like if she could just play tomb raider without the fighting and just do the tomb solving and the exploration she'd be set 
Yeah, and that makes sense to me. I mean, that's it's a feature that a lot of game developers have been putting in their games lately, which is, you know, being, yeah, it's great. being able to just take the story and almost the combat becomes trivial at that point. Um, I mean, my default is always whatever whatever the game comes on is usually what I play it on. If I play it again, then I'll push it up to hard. But uh, I usually go for the default. Uh, hmm. I think that's, and that's usually how I think I used to do it. And then I've come to find that, yeah, some of them just don't, stack up well enough like trials of mana for example i played on hard because on normal it's very easy Mm. for the sake of my review though i did scale it back a bit because some of the fights were getting a little more challenging and for me to just get through the game in a timely fashion before embargo i went back to easy just to kind of rip through things uh in a timely fashion yeah and that's the thing that but it's definitely more fun to play on hard yeah and that's the thing that you know reviewers need to do because the one thing that we do at rpg fan is that you know we finish every single game that we review beginning to end and yeah unless there's extenuating circumstances unless there's extenuating circumstances i remember my first the very first review i did for the site uh fallout 76 um i got i got to the pour one out for john yeah i got to the bunker i got to the bunker i was about to launch the nuke and it just crashed and i i, I messaged start i messaged alana and was like yeah this happened can i just review the game now please and she's like oh yeah that's no problem you you got to it you got to the end it's fine yeah that happened to me with Citizens of Space, as people may remember, where like it crashed three times, and when I'm pretty sure it was the final battle, it's finally on the third time. I'm like, I shouldn't have to work this hard to try and beat this game. So, nope. Yeah, but occasionally it does mean that we have to switch around the difficulties a little bit to be able to advance into the game. Um, mm-hmm. and- but we want to give it a fair shake too, right? By trying all the difficulties. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are you playing uh, Horizon Zero Dawn on right now? I can't remember if I'm playing the next thing under the hardest setting, or if I'm just playing it on normal. I feel like I only just dropped it down one setting, so it's still a challenge. Like, for, I've gone down from like a like a watcher, which is one of like the basic enemies, taking me out in one shot or one and a half, to like now it takes a good like two two and a half hits for it to kill me, depending on which of its heavier or light strikes get me, kind of thing. So I can still get knocked around pretty good if I'm not careful, but not as badly as before, where something like sneezes on me and kills me if I'm not careful. Yeah, and I mean the funny the thing I find about that is if something can one shot kill you. Uh, you're not really going to be able to learn. Uh, it, it's going to take you way longer to learn. Whereas, <laughs> just you got to learn to dodge better. Apparently, yeah, you got to learn to dodge better. But if you're playing it on like the difficulty below the hardest difficulty, you might have one or two more times you can see like, oh wow, that took away like most of my health. I better not get hit this next time. Yeah, which is where I'm at now, and it's and I mean, in the in the end of the day, it feels much more realistic to play it on one of those harder settings because you know when you think of the context of giant metallic animals and or dinosaurs hitting you with their prehensile tails or claws and stuff that would probably shred a human in you know one attack so it stands to reason mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i'm excited for you to finally try this game for the first time though no i'm excited it's, too. it's super fun yeah despite the the difficulty sometimes but i just uh, i love the world it's it blows my mind just how big and immersive like some of these cities are the how alive everything feels like mm-hmm. i remember um Robonster on the ps2 playing final fantasy 12 mm-hmm. and just how big and alive that world felt for the first time like that was one of the first rpgs where like every npc you wasn't someone you could interact with but at the same time like all the crowds felt alive there's a nice general buzz through the city uh it was just it was great for making it like a feeling like a living breathing rpg city because like you can remember so many games in the snes days where you're like you go into quote unquote a bustling city but like every npc is there um 
and like there's like six of them yep and they all say like welcome to corneria or whatever and it's about that so it's it, it was really cool to see that and this is just kind of like the next step like just the world feels so alive in horizon zero dawn and it's amazing and then the the amount of work the developers and the writing team and the and the scenario building into how again this future can come around is just so very cool mm. and it sounds like the acting is incredible so yeah the performances are great the the animated performances are great as well although it's funny now that i've seen other stuff since i'm just like oh it i can see the cracks a bit more in it but it, like again it's it's still a fantastic looking game the acting is great and to see something like this in like unreal 5 will be just mind-boggling yeah i mean i would suspect that if a sequel is being created right now at some point there will it will probably be in unreal 5 yeah yeah exactly uh but yeah that's pretty much been all i've really been playing um that uh moving on though i know you've uh you've you've had bravely and stuff in in the works but i know one thing uh it's kind of funny running joke at this point where we always plan to talk about this game and then we don't uh but finally finally we are going to talk about her story which came out in june of 2015 and was such a cool looking experience that i actually i'm glad that you brought it up because i had almost forgotten about it but i remember when it came out it was like a lot of people found it really poignant and interesting and you finally went through it uh it was what back in november now at this yeah point? it's funny you say that because i can't remember it at this point but <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it was it was yeah it was definitely before christmas last year yeah uh it was uh it was in my backlog for years and i it just was sitting in like my games folder and uh uh I really enjoyed it. Um, for those who who don't know it, um, it is a uh, it's an FMV game, which is you know still it's sort of a rarity nowadays. Um, but it's it's uh, it's an FMV game where you play at you don't know who you are, but you're sitting down at a PC. I would say in the mid '90s, and the interface looks like Windows '95, and uh, you have uh, police interviews. Uh, they've been recorded on VHS and someone digitized them and someone organized them on this computer. But because it's such an old computer, you can't just watch them sequentially. You can't just be like one, two, three, four, five. Um, so you can only watch it, watch clips by putting in keywords because there's a transcript that was made for all of them. So, for example, if you put in the word murder, uh, the top five clips that feature the word murder will pop up uh, and then you watch it. And then from this, you can slowly piece together the story. So if you watch a clip that's about murder, uh, the character who's being interviewed might say, like, I I did not murder my husband. And you can say, oh, okay, so let's put in the keyword husband and search for that. And then you'll get another piece of the story. And then from there, you'll have to listen very carefully to the conversation. And, oh, so it was, it was at their house. Okay, so house. Uh, and from there, you can slowly piece together uh, uh, what happened to this woman and uh, it's it's a fascinating situation because this is not immediate. It's not it's not a story that has immediate consequences. Like you're not trying to track down who the murderer is or figure out who it is because this ha this thing happened like a decade earlier. These are archival videos, um, and you don't quite you actually don't quite know why you're watching it until the very end of the game, uh, which I won't spoil for anybody. Um, and it's a really interesting interface. You really do feel like you're using an archaic, uh, an archaic OS, and you're sitting at a PC uh, 
and I, I don't feel like this game would work. I, I've never, I played it on my PC. I don't know what it would work on other systems, especially home consoles, because I feel like with a keyboard and a mouse, those it, it really creates an immersive experience because you really do feel like you're sitting on a on Windows 95. Um, there, this is not saying the game is perfect. Um, I think it's deserving of its reputation as a, an incredible experience, but there are some uh, deep cracks in it as well. Um, the main one being that there are little, the point of the game is you have to collect, you know, it says you need to figure out the story. You need to figure out what happened. That's sort of the reason why you're playing. But eventually you, you have the story, you have all of it, you know what's happened. You've pieced together all of the, uh, all of the clues and you've seen all of the clips that are important and you know exactly what happened but there are still video clips missing. And those video clips will be something like uh, her walking into the interview room and going, oh, hey, or like her saying, yes, I'd love a coffee. And uh, it can be kind of frustrating to track those ones down. Um, and that requires a bit of detective work. And in a way it's kind of fun, but eventually it's just like, oh, okay, well, I'm kind of done here because I know what happened. I figured out the story. And at this point, there's no real drive to figure it out anymore. Since I know the story, I don't really care about the kind of whether the coffee um and that sort of takes away the uh the fun of the game but you need to get all of the clips in order to see the actual ending huh yeah i'll tell you one thing about that i do love i did love about the game as a as a former actor and i know you would love it as a current actor plus i was going to ask you actually yeah like about the performance work exceptional absolutely exceptional um uh, the woman who is in it, I cannot, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Her name is, uh, her name is Viva Seifert. She is a British gymnast. Or Seifert. Seifert. Uh, Viva Seifert. She is a British gymnast, musician, and actress. But she's not primarily an actress. Um, and uh, she did an incredible job uh, just because you don't actually hear what the interview is asking. Uh, the interviewer is there's just silence when the interviewer is talking. So she is the only point of focus for the entire game. And because it's a full motion video game, it's if, if she isn't believable, if she isn't delivering a performance that seems real, it's just going to completely and utterly fall apart. And it can be hard just when you're just monologuing, basically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's a it's a heck of an acting challenge. But she is mm -hmm. she is charming. She is funny. She is at some points, disturbing. Um, I I was very, very impressed by this game. I'm just looking at some of the numbers. Like I said, part of the reason why I found myself getting frustrated around the end is that there's 271 video clips, and a lot of them are just little connecting bits of dialogue between the important bits, and trying to track down those can be a little frustrating. But I guess that's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, being an editor at the video game a little bit. Yeah. And you really got to track it down because <laughs> you, you don't get all of the clips. You only get the top five, you get the earliest five clips of the, uh, keyword that you say. So if you like to say the word murder, for example, if you typed in the word murder, you're only going to get the first five clips in chronological order of that mention murder. If you want to go further than that, you're going to have to add more keywords. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, SEO, the game, um, uh, well, do you plan to go from there into telling lies? I know it's not as well received, but it came out just last year. Yeah. And that one's developed with Annapurna, who you uh, you visited Edith Finch not too long ago by them. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's going to be an interesting game. It looks cool. It looks like an expansion of what uh, her story does. Uh, the guy is uh, Sam Barlow, 
who's the creator. And it's it's interesting because FMV games have a historically uh, terrible reputation, um, partially because of Night Stalkers, I think it was, for uh, Sega CD. Mm-hmm, right. Um, but this felt just this this felt very very real um and telling lies looks like a continuation of it and it looks like there's some more it's slightly more refined in terms of the experience also it features an actor who i really really like uh can't what's her name carrie carrie bishy carrie bish b-i-s-h-e with don't know not familiar with her she was uh she played the lead in the uh last season of scrubs once uh, Zach Braff sort of left the show, sort of stuck around, but she took over the lead as the basically the narrator. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I think she was the best part about that season, actually, because that's uh, not very high regard. I'm a big Scrubs fan, but uh, and I haven't seen her in anything since then. And she showed up in this and I was like, oh, OK, I kind of want to I want to see what she does. Also, oh, you're thinking Night Trap. I'm thinking Night, Night Trap. Night Stalkers. Night is, Stalkers, I think, is the fighting game <laughs> or Dark Stalkers, whatever. Yeah. So yeah, this is going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting experience, and I'm going to play it at some point. I have it, so. But that also feeds into the other adventure game you've been playing, but it's a very different style of kind of. Like they're both adventure games, but although I guess her story almost is a bit more visual novel. I'd say it's visual, it's, yeah, visual novel. Visual video. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're talking about Dolores Thimbleweed Park mini adventure, um, which is an interesting creature. Uh, this got released like three days ago, four days ago. Um, Yeah, May 9th. Yeah. So Thimbleweed Park, I assume that most people who are listening to this podcast know what Thimbleweed Park is because it was one of the, uh, it was one of the, the biggest adventure games on, uh, on Kickstarter ever. I think it was exceptional, exceptionally popular Kickstarter because uh, uh, Ron Gilbert, who is the creator of uh, one of the creators of Maniac Mansion and the secret of Monkey Island uh, got back together with his co-designer, Gary uh, Winnick and, uh, they created a spiritual sequel to Maniac Mansion. Um, and it uses its, its pixel graphics, astoundingly beautiful uh, pixel, gra- uh, pixel graphics. Um, it uses a very refined version of the verb interface from classic LucasArts adventure games. It feels, and this is what they were going for, it feels like a LucasArts adventure game that got lost in the bottom of your drawer and they pull it and you pull it out and you're like, oh, I didn't know this existed. And you put it in and you play it. Um, but with a lot of modern touches. So there are four playable characters. You, you can change your inventory between them. Uh, and it, all, it it takes place in a town called Thimbleweed Park. And there are a lot of... I mean, obviously, it's inspired by uh, Maniac Mansion and uh, Curse of Monkey Island. So there's a lot of references to that. But it also feels very similar to the X-Files. There's X-Files references throughout. Uh, Twin Peaks is another one because Twin Peaks is about a town with an underlying dark secret. Um, and I just loved it. I played it when it came, first came out in uh, 2017. Uh, I had my, I had some criticisms of it, but on the whole, I thought it was a fantastic experience. Um, and I thought that was it. Uh, they haven't announced anything since then, and I you know didn't expect anything. And just completely out of the blue, about a few days ago, Ron Gilbert uh, dropped what he called a uh, a demo for a new game engine that he is working on. And it was a little, I guess it was like a little mini uh coda to Thimbleweed Park. It's free. Uh, he just, he created it during the COVID-19 lockdown, uh, you know, just as something to pass the time. He's not, he's yeah, not selling he's it. Yeah, he's able to play around with yeah, it. He's not selling it. You can just download it off Steam. Um, 
And he said, you know, it's not, it's, it's very basic. There's no voice acting in it because obviously, again, it was, you know, a personal project. It's using entirely recycled assets from Thimbleweed Park. It takes place in Thimbleweed Park and a year after the events. Um, and it was a delightful little experience. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a game. I wouldn't necessarily call it like a game like you would play, you know, any other adventure game for LucasArts, Monkey Island, or it's, it's, it's a demo is what it is. Um, just, you know, him trying out a few new things on this, uh, on this prototype game engine, which works pretty well. It works very well as a, uh, as a adventure game engine. Um, and you know, there's some returning characters and things like that. And it's interesting coming back to the city. Um, you are Dolores, who is the returning character from Thimbleweed Park. Um, and she's been hired by the local newspaper to take some photos. So you, you start up the game and you're given five assignments. You need to find five items and you need to take photos that can be used in the newspaper for these five stories. So uh, some of them are basic, like uh, take a photo of the editor. So you say, oh, okay, so you'll take a photo of, of your editor who's sitting right in front of you. Uh, and another one might be uh, take a photo of something disgusting. So you have to find something disgusting in the town and take a photo of it. And you're given five assignments at a time. And after you hand in your assignments, uh, the game quits. Uh, it just it just quits. You say, okay, your assignment's done later, and the game quits. And then if you restart it again, you're given five new assignments. Um, and the assignments oftentimes play into the basic, you know, the, the kind of madcap adventure game logic uh, that you'd expect from Maniac Mansion or, uh, or uh, Secret of Monkey Island. There's not a whole lot right. of story here. There's, it, you know, this, this is it. Um, but it was a nice return to the town. And I, I've always liked, I've liked, I like bite-sized adventure games. I like bite-sized games. I always have. This takes an hour to play. Like, it is not what you would call a, a long game. It's a one sitting, you're going to finish it beginning to end and see everything the game has to offer um, in no time at all. It ends on a very interesting and ominous note, which I, I liked. It ended very Twin Peaks Season 3. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the open-ended nature of it, which I I enjoy personally, so yeah, uh, I liked it. It's just an hour of my life, and it's an hour that I uh, I am not I do not regret uh, giving. And if you've played Thimbleweed Park and you're looking for an hour's worth of entertainment during this uh, quarantine, then I suggest you download it. The new engine, like how different is it from the original engine? Actually, that's something I've been curious about, and I, have, I did some research, and I haven't been able to find an answer. I can't figure out why he is trying. He is. Uh, it's a demo for a new uh, game engine because it was my understanding that they created their own engine for Thimbleweed Park, and it worked wonderfully. Um, yeah, so this was. It's it's very much a prototype. It got rid of the verbs completely. It uses the classic, you know, right click on the item, and then a verb wheel comes up with the available number of verbs. So you know, look at, open, pick up, that kind of thing. Um, it it was very minimalistic in terms of interface. There's not really a whole lot there. And like I said, all of the assets are from Thimbleweed Park, so it's not you're not going to see anything new. Um, it, it was just an interesting experiment, I feel, in reusing assets to tell a new sort of story. And uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't mind if you released a few more of these. Well, that's pretty cool. It's... I've um, there's so many adventure games that I want to play because they all seem so fascinating and interesting. I have a few even just sitting in my library to get back to, but I just I don't make time for them. I just find 
I, I usually want stuff that's got a bit more engaging gameplay. Mm-hmm. But like, there's just they have a siren call to me that I want to embrace <laughs> and never do. Yeah, I was thinking about diving into a few a uh, few adventure games that I've had on my backlog for a while as my next kind of game. Uh, I mentioned that I really like short form short story gaming, and in that spirit, I was thinking I've only. I don't know why I haven't played it because it was one of my favorite series. Uh, Sam and Max from Telltale Games. I Season one and season two, I thought. Yeah. yeah season one and two were fantastic. And I've literally had season three sitting on my shelf uh, for like 10 years at this point. So uh, a couple of days ago, I, I took it off the shelf and I, uh, I <laughs> then I realized that my, my current system doesn't actually have a, uh, an optical reader on it. So I went to their website, which is still up and still had all of the games I bought from them so I could download it from them. And I think that I think that uh, Sam and Max season three might be my next one. Or I think there's another series called uh, Depona, Deponia. Oh yeah, I've heard good things about Deponia. Yeah, so uh, I have the complete journey and I've had it for quite some time now. So I was thinking about giving that a shot. So we'll see what happens in two weeks from now. What I come back with. Well, that's yeah. There's there's lots of cool games. Yeah, Sam and Max was one of my 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 best friends uh, loved great deal. And um, there was also a uh, was there a TV series? No, there wasn't. There was a cartoon show. Oh, there was a cartoon show. Okay, cool. I thought I was like, is that a fever dream? Did it really happen? I can't remember. I mean, I would um, kill for a remaster of Sam and Max Hit the Road. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. That was was that their no? That was their second one. No, that was their first game. Oh, it was the first one? Okay, I couldn't remember. Yeah, it was uh, Lucas Arts. Um, yeah, uh, not Maniac Mansion, but uh, Day of the Tentacle. I think it was my first like Lucas Arts experience. Again, through my yeah. friend, which you could play Maniac Mansion in the game, which is funny. Such a great bonus feature. Yeah, I mean, if you <laughs> if you that. love Maniac Mansion, you're going to love Sam and Max because it uses similar style graphics, similar. I think it uses the exact same engine. So um, and it looks good. I mean, in terms of it still looks good, in my opinion, with its uh, very pixel graphics. So, yeah, I uh, I mean, I love adventure games. I always have They're the LucasArts Adventure gaming pack when I was a kid came with uh, Day of the Tentacle, Sam and Max, and uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, and I played those things to death, like to the point where the CDs wouldn't run anymore. That's hardcore. Yeah, LucasArts Adventure games I've always had a very uh, a soft spot for, and uh, Thimbleweed Park really hit it out of the park in terms of bringing back all of that nostalgia and putting it into a new context, which is the trick about nostalgia. It's, it's nice, it, you know, it's nice to play a game that reminds you of things, but it's even better when you play a game that reminds you of things and makes you reconsider parts of them or rethink them or or puts them in a different light after you play it. That's what I think good nostalgia is. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is a perfect segue to uh, where we're going to round out this podcast with, with going back to Jono's ever-continuing adventures with Bravely Default, uh, which is one of those games that, yeah, does the right balance of nostalgia with a bit of iteration on oh yeah this would have made final fantasy much better if they had done this instead or whatever right Mm -hmm. uh we have also had some ongoing conversations with some of our listeners uh about bravely default and once again i want to thank uh both jeremy and uh, raul who have been writing into us and i've kind of had a back and forth dialogue as they've uh continued to ask questions and been grateful that their questions have been answered by jono jeremy once again sent us uh, another uh message after listening to episode 187 as we continued our discussion of bravely uh, default with uh, john going into bravely second and as i recall because you felt yeah. like like jeremy says here that it felt like bravely second was more or less just a big piece of dlc 
yeah, uh, that was basically what I what I thought of it. I, it that's not a bad thing. Good DLC no, is more of good the same. DLC is exceptional. It's more of the same, and you know they might take it in some different directions, and it pushes the story forward. But yeah, revisiting all of the dungeons, even though there were some really great new towns, it there was a lot of retreads uh, in the game, and I felt that that hurt it a little bit. Um, certainly not Which friendly. Which Jeremy echoes. Yeah, certainly not a game that you, that is friendly to someone who is looking for. Uh, their first experience with the Bravely series. Um, yeah, you'd want to start with Bravely Default before you got to Bravely Second. Yes. Although, apparently, based on what I've played thus far, Bravely Default 2, you could easily start with that first. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because you finally got into the demo. I feel like it's still more of the same. But I guess yeah. what you were saying, though, is there's a bit of a, a dissonance with the the combat, which that was where you were echoing me in. Yeah, I mean, the game feels like Bravely Default in terms of the way, you know, the conversation system and the characters yeah. vary. A lot the of personality. The construct of the party. The construct of the party. The, the towns are just, I mean, there's only one town that I've seen thus far, but it's just jaw-droppingly beautiful. Um, world yeah, building is very, very strong. Yeah, world building is very, very strong. Um, and there are a few changes that they pushed forward. Like, for example, uh, you actually see enemies on the map, so it's not just random battles anymore. Yeah, and there's um, a bit more strategy to how you approach them, which I do like. I, yeah, that was something I was, I, you know, once I finish this thing and if they do send out this survey, I'm going to mention, can you make the, can you tighten up those hit boxes a little bit? Because they are a little finicky. Um, yeah, fair enough. Cause, yeah, because you can strike an enemy on the screen with your sword and that will give you like a, you know, a boost off the top. Um, or if they attack you from behind, it'll give you, it'll give them a boost. Um, the only thing that I can say about this game that I don't, it's not that I don't like it. It's uh, the revised battle system. Uh, in Bravely Default and Bravely Second, uh, the way the the game goes, it's 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 a uh, it's a classic turn based system. Um, but you give all of your commands to your team, all of them right off the top. So you'll give one yeah. to one, one to two. So you'll you'll make a plan, and then based on the speed, based on uh, each character's uh, speed. Um, They'll go, and then enemies will go, and and back and forth. Um, and I really liked this system. I liked the strategy of it. I like being able to like lay it all out there and see my strategy unfold. In in uh, Bravely Default Two, on the other hand, it goes for a much more traditional turn-based Final Fantasy style without uh, without the active time battle system, where it's yeah, you don't act yeah. until the agility comes up for you, basically, right? Yeah. So it's so it's characters' turn. You put in the thing, they move. Enemies' turn, they do a thing then it's your turn again and you give the commands. So you don't you give the commands one at a time based on who comes up next rather than everyone off the top. And it doesn't quite feel as good to me. Um I guess on the one hand, just thinking about it, like it's a lot harder to break battles. Like you can't just one shot your way through it. True, but the Bravely system is still there in terms of uh being able to uh grind your way through by just, you know, picking all of the brave by going bravely each time uh, right off the top and uh, slaughtering a enemy mob uh, to gain levels. Uh, that's still an option. It's, it's a little bit less user-friendly, I guess you could say. And yeah. maybe that's what they're trying to go for to minimize. And yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, yeah, you can't just kind of... I mean, you could theoretically, if all your party is agile enough, you possibly could still do it. But it just, yeah, it doesn't seem as easy to to just mow down everybody unless you, like, yeah, you really power grind it just seems a little 
uh, a lot harder to kind of stun lock, for lack of a better term, the entire enemy party. But I do like that, um, like, the enemies have, still have, like, their weaknesses to certain attacks and stuff like that. So it can be strategic to try and make someone brave. Like, uh, like the orcs, I think, if I recall, had a weakness to, like, the daggers, I want to mm-hmm. say. And so I had to make sure, like, I had my two characters, the two females whose names I escaped because it's been a while since I played it. They both had daggers, so I would get them to kind of brave and, like, target the orcs because they had a much higher hit points and try and get them to take at least one of them down so I wouldn't get lambasted by them and then have the mage use fire and the other guy just hit things. And it was... I liked that, and I can't remember. It's been so long since I played Bravely. I know your character classes would do better with certain items and certain weapons, but I can't remember if enemies had weaknesses to weapon types as, as well as elemental types i'm not sure for bravely default too if i mean you know i think that's smart because they obviously have elemental weaknesses mm-hmm. um i'll tell you the one thing that i think we're in total agreement about though in this game the characters have got to shut the hell up <laughs> oh my god Yeah, the repetition in the combat is they need more phrases which maybe we'll get more in the game uh, in full i don't even want them to have more phrases i want them to have i want them to have more phrases that they use considerably less yeah um, i wish there's like, a way to tone it down yeah in bravely default and bravely second the only time they really shouted something is when you used one of your special moves um and at that point it felt appropriate but in this case they're like doing a major celebration every time they hit someone with a sword and it, it and also because the timing isn't quite there yet, if you do a number of bravelies, braves in a row, uh, like their lines will start going on top of their next line. Yeah, they trip over just, themselves. And it's just that this the sinking isn't quite right. Um, I and there's no option to shut it off, which is yep. the frustrating bit. I was just like, where's that option from like Baldur's Gate? Because in Baldur's yeah. Gate, you can change the frequency with which your party will chatter at you and stuff like that in combat situations and stuff and it's just like this the, this setting needs to be here yeah i can't be sure but i have an odd feeling that when they do release those uh, surveys the overwhelming thing that people are going to say is just just shut the hell up please i appreciate that you're trying to bring life to them but make it less frequent yeah like i mean i th- you know spider-man uses quips and talks all the time to irritate his opponents but uh, you know, he doesn't irritate us, but these characters irritate us yeah. regularly. Throw a little more uh, and ah, uh, in there. Yeah, that works. Just do Link. <laughs> just just use Link's exactly. sound effects. People don't yeah. have well-poised, put-together um, pieces of prose every time they're in the midst of combat. Yes, a, a pithy quip. Yeah, uh, anyways, it, it's shaping up to look good. Like, you, I, I guess now that you've played it too, you see what I mean where like, it graphically looks better and doesn't all at the same time. Like they've taken a certain stylization to it that it looks really good and it feels still very bravely default, but also doesn't quite feel next gen. But I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, they're using a lot of the a lot of the style from uh, Octopath Traveler in terms of the in terms of the screen depth and things like that, um, which I think works quite, works quite well for it. I do too. No, I'm I'm very very excited for this game. I cannot wait for it to come out. It's going to be neat to once it's all fully finished up and like this demo that feels very much like the original demo we got for Bravely Default back when too. Just a nice taste, not without its flaws. 
clearly there's stuff to tighten up and hopefully yeah the the survey they put out and square enix seems to be making good on a lot of those surveys and such when they put them out like they are taking that feedback to heart so here's hoping um to round out things raul also rewrote us back as well uh following up with episode 188 when we were talking about uh the question that he gave us and he was happy to hear about that um but you did bring up uh, that Tomoya Asano, who is the series producer. Um, apparently in Famitsu earlier this year, he had released um, a statement saying that he was kind of like apologizing, that he felt that Bravely, the Bravely series, I guess, or Bravely Second at least, didn't really meet fan expectations. And yeah, I guess I... it's all what you get. And it's it seems weird. Like Raul says, too, he's like, I don't feel like it was underwhelming. But I guess if you were expecting a full on sequel, I guess it would be. And I guess with them going now, hearing what you've heard, because I hadn't played Bravely Second up till now, so I was a bit confused too when they released Bravely Second. But now hearing what you've said about, sorry, Bravely Default 2 is coming out. So hearing what you said about Bravely Second and what Jeremy has said as well uh, in his emails to us, that it feels like DLC, that just more seems like, yeah, like an expansion of the first Bravely Default, which is why it isn't truly the sequel. And now we are getting Bravely Default 2, which will be an entirely new... um, I guess possibly world to explore, but a whole new storyline and new environments and stuff, right? Yeah, and I mean the fact is the Bravely series has the built-in uh, uh, the built-in story device of parallel realities and parallel worlds, so they could very easily bring in elements from the first two Bravely games into this in a very organic way. Um, I read the interview where he apologized, and I have to admit it was a st- Maybe it was a translation thing. Like, maybe it might have just been, like, a a weird translation, but it really came out of nowhere. It really really felt abrupt and, like, no one was expecting him to say it because Bravely Bravely Second is not a bad game. It's not. It's a good game. Um, And the fact that he apologized... It's clear he read the comments, though. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's one thing I don't think that most creators should do when they go online. Um, Yep. I'm looking at it right now. Before I talk about the title name in more detail, first of all, please allow me to apologize about Bravely Second. Despite receiving a lot of expectations for Bravely Second, we feel like there were parts that didn't live up to fan expectations. Um, The introspection from Bravely Second has taken a deep, strong root in production for all titles being worked on by our team right now. Um, I think that a lot of Bravely fans were taken aback by that because, I mean, nobody likes being told by somebody that something they like is not good. Um, which is sort of what, you know, this implies. So it was a very odd statement that I could not quite figure out. Also, um, to uh, your musings in um, our last episode, too, when you were asking about uh, what Magnolia's quote-unquote French translated to in Japan, apparently Mm -hmm. in Japan her other language is English. Oh, that makes sense. English being the language of the moon. Exactly. That's what uh, Rule, you gave us that fun fact. So Rule... And Jeremy, once again, thank you for your emails and continuing our discussion of Bravely. Uh, it's probably going to be uh, a pin in it for now until Bravely Default 2 comes out and or I get to Bravely Second, which uh, all your talk of it has made me want to go and pull it out with uh, <laughs> my 3DS. I've just been yeah busy with other things. It's uh, something I've always wanted to revisit ever since playing the demo of it as well, because I, I, I'm ready for more. I, I think I'm, I'm I even at this point, yeah, going into what has expanded more default, I've I'm fine with that personally. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that brings us to an ep- of another episode of Random Encounter. What do you think, Jono? I think it does too. I think that we, I think we probably wrap it up here. Yeah, that's fair. 
We'll talk again in a couple weeks. You've had enough of me for today. Uh, but in the meantime, folks, if you haven't had enough of us, we got plenty of other episodes you can listen to. If you want to leave us feedback, we're podcast at rpgfan.com. And I appreciate all the emails I get, as you can see. And I'm glad that we're getting more. It's great. Uh, it's It was really nice to see more um, listener emails than spam this week. Thank you for that. <laughs> and we uh, can also be reached on pretty much any form of social media. On Twitter and um, on Instagram, we are at rpgfancom you can find us on facebook as well and we are on twitch with regular streams you can listen to episodes of retro encounter um i think the fan poll just went up not too long ago for what was going to be played in a few episodes from now uh which i think is actually kind of topical with our discussion today of um the whole ogre series and then we have um rhythm encounter if you want to listen to some music and then hat and eric have the phoenix edge podcast and I bet you they're probably also talking about the uh, the Unreal Five engine and stuff like that too right now. I would imagine, yeah. And don't forget, you don't don't forget that you're churning out some absolutely excellent content on YouTube right now. You released a uh, news oh, a news update video a couple of days ago that I recommend everyone checks out. Yeah, Max's uh, his pilot series uh, got greenlit, and we've been working on that. And we got another one that'll be coming up at the end of May. So the uh, the the monthly news reload is fun to do. It's yeah, it's a nice little. We'll wrap up the kind of quick hits of the month. So check out our YouTube content. Thank you for plugging our team. <laughs> They're doing a heck of a job. Yeah. And John also just had a big review of his whole Yakuza collection was collected into uh, one big video there as well. So you can go check out that if you want a quick hit of the entire uh, Yakuza remastered collection. That's three, yeah, four, if five. Want, if you want to hear me talk about Yakuza a little bit more, please go there. <laughs> exactly. Because uh, until like a dragon comes out, I don't know if we'll get much out of you for a bit. Oh, no, it's very sad. I am very upset by this. <laughs> I'm sure. So, yeah, you can find RPG Fan uh, pretty much anywhere. And uh, you can talk to us very easily. I'm on Discord as G Delmi. And I'm at Greg Delmage on Twitter. Jono, where can folks talk to you? Uh, John Logan at Twitter. At John and... Logan at Twitter. <laughs> at John Logan at Twitter. Dot com. Dot net. He... Slash. <laughs> slash GeoCities. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you so much all for listening. Until the next episode, have yourselves a good one. Stay sane, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Bye for now. Bye.